We're continuing our study in 1 Timothy, so I invite you to take your Bible there or turn to it or tap to it on your phone. 1 Timothy chapter 2. Lord willing, it'll be this week and next week, and we'll finish the chapter. But I'm going to read the section we're in, starting in verse 8 of chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15. The words inspired by the Holy Spirit given to us through the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says this. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Father, we ask for your grace as we study your word. You have graciously given us your word. You've graciously given us your spirit. And now we ask that your spirit, through your word, would work in our hearts to confirm your truth and to bring us into conformity to it. May the attributes of Christ, his love and his joy and his peace be more and more demonstrated in our life as you mature us and grow us through your word. Help me to be clear and help us to be attentive. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I am going to assume that the majority of you know, the majority of you know what the game of Jenga is. I'm sure there are more here who know the game than there was in the Spanish service. A couple of puzzled looks in there. What is Jenga? If you don't know what it is, it's basically a game where you have a tower of wooden blocks and the tower grows. You take blocks out of the tower and you put them on top of the tower. So the tower, as the game progresses, gets taller but it also gets more unstable. And the game continues until the tower falls. It's a fun game. We play with our kids. You play with your friends. But it's not the Tower of Jenga that we want to serve as a model for a local church. A Jenga church, if you will, is a church that's growing. It's a church where there is movement and excitement and energy and and fun But behind it, what you have is a weakening structure. The foundations of biblical truth are eroding. In contrast to a Jenga tower, the image the Apostle Paul had for the churches he planted was one of a healthy, young, growing tree. Speaking to the Colossians, Paul said, the gospel which had come to them was bearing fruit and increasing. And that speaks 
On the one hand, of numerical growth, more people were coming to the church. On the other hand, it speaks of spiritual growth. The people were maturing. The gospel was, was growing in their hearts and in their lives. A faithful leader, a faithful pastor will, uh, like a faithful gardener, tend the tree. When the structure of the branches threatens the stability of the tree, there needs to be pruning. Something needs to be, needs to be trimmed. And when something from the outside comes and attacks the tree or a disease from within, steps should be taken to address it, that you want that to be prevented or addressed if needed, if need be. The goal is to have a strong tree, a healthy tree. You want healthy roots. You want a firm foundation that in the end produce good fruit. So a healthy church is going to grow, but it's going to be healthy growth as opposed to poisonous growth or unstable growth. Unfortunately, in the case of the church of Ephesus, Paul realized that things had gotten precarious. It had become, if you will, a Jenga church. It was beginning to stray from the truth and was already, or at least in danger of, becoming unfaithful to Christ, its Lord. And so Paul wrote them a letter, and it was aimed at Timothy, but it would have been read to the whole church. We know it as 1 Timothy. He wrote a letter later on called 2 Timothy. But Timothy was left there in the city of Ephesus acting as Paul's representative, and Paul's goal in the letter is to spur him toward restoring order in the church. And restoring order means going back to the truths of scriptures. If you've been at a church for a long time or a short time, hopefully you've seen one of the founding principles of our church is our devotion to the word of God. We, we read the Bible. We, we teach from the Bible. In, in general, we're going systematically through portions of scripture so that we, we cover everything that's there. This is the word of God, according to Peter, that gave us the new birth. It's the word of God that unites us, and it's the word of God that is like milk that nourishes and grows us. And so this is Paul's heart to Timothy as the leader. You need to go back to the word of God. In in chapter one of the letter, he tells Timothy to deal with false teachers that had infiltrated the church. And then beginning in chapter two, Paul begins to address some specific issues that needed correction. The Ephesian church was going astray. It It was starting to wobble And Timothy needed to be reminded and then to remind the church about its true purpose and the way it was to function as the body of Christ. The church needed to be equipped to serve for the glory of Christ. Paul's instructions aren't just helpful to the Ephesians, they then are helpful to churches today, including ours. The word of God helps to correct and to prevent threats to the order and to the structure of a church. In 2 Timothy 3.16, many of you know it, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching or instruction, for correction, for training. That's true at the individual level for all of us as Christians. It's true at the corporate level for a local church. You need to go back to the word of God. So Paul is teaching doctrinal truths concerning fundamental issues of the faith, and then he's going from those truths and making connections to functional expressions in the church. 
We saw that a couple weeks ago when Paul reminded Timothy about the heart of God, which is to save men, men and women, all people. He desires them to come to a knowledge of the truth. Understanding that was intended to restore and to protect the church practice of praying for the lost. Paul also, in chapter 2, goes on to address a, a group of men in the church who apparently were using the church assembly as an opportunity to promote their own agendas rather than to serve Christ and to, serve, and to edify the church. So instead of the church at Ephesus being uh, an expression of the unity that they have in Christ, there was strife, there was anger, there were arguments and division because of some group of men. On the other hand, there was also a group of women who were using the church as an opportunity for self-promotion in a different way. There was a spiritual preoccupation with their appearance, and that was primarily demonstrated through an ostentatious expression of their wealth and or their sexuality. And we looked at that last week. Paul calls the women to modesty, to self-control, He wants the women there, including the men, but specifically he's addressing what's going on with the women. He wants them to serve as a reflection of the holiness of Christ and the reverence of the gathering. Today we're continuing Paul's instruction or correction regarding the women, and I think you know these are not easy issues to talk about, particularly in the culture in which we live. It's not easy to talk to a woman about the way that she's dressing, And it's not easy for many in our culture to speak about or hear about any limitations on the way a woman serves in the church. We're in a world that rejects God. They reject God's truth outright. Some claim to accept it and then make up ways to get around it. They reject the design of God. That's clear in our culture. And so what we're going to talk about today and continue talking about next week, you should know, is one of the most controversial and emotionally charged subjects when it comes to structure and, and, and organization in the church. And that topic is the proper role of women. Countless mothers and fathers are raising their sons and particularly their daughters to say, when you grow up, you can do whatever you want. Mothers and fathers want to tell their daughters, you can do anything a man can do. You don't hear as many Parents saying, I tell my son you can do whatever a woman can do because there are some clear biological differences as well. But this is the spirit of the culture. We elevate personal independence, personal autonomy, and no one is allowed to tell me what I can or can't do. And that is set against the heart of the gospel, which is I die daily. That was Jesus' wording. If anyone wants to come after me, let him take up his cross and follow me. Our identity is in Christ, and he is Lord. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. He's the anointed one of God, the Messiah. He's our king. He's our master. He's our Lord. Our identity is in him, and then he, through his Holy Spirit and through his word, guides us and directs how we are to organize ourselves, particularly with the local church. This idea that you can do whatever you want gets confronted head on as we come to chapter 2, verse 11. You look with me at it, chapter 2, 1 Timothy, verse 11. Paul transitions from a woman's appearance now to her demeanor, and this is what he says. 1 Timothy 2, 11. Let a woman learn quietly 
with all submissiveness. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. You put woman and quiet and submissive in the same sentence and you are getting ready for a heap of trouble in our culture. There's a lot of pushback. A statement like this obviously is going to get and it's gotten it through the centuries. But I want to start just by addressing a point that many people miss, which is significant. Some people are so quick to focus on what Paul appears to be taking away from women and they miss what Christ and Paul have have given to them. You have to understand that at this time in the Jewish culture and in the Greek or Roman culture, women were not to be taught. Even the Jewish rabbis, the women could hear the word, but they were not to be taught the word. They made distinctions. They separated them. But Paul expected the women to be taught. They were to learn the scriptures. In that sense, Paul follows the pattern of Jesus. He, he exalts women. It's set against the culture of that time where women weren't to be esteemed and prized. They were to be maintained as property. But they weren't to be trusted and they were not to be educated. Even in legal courts, a woman couldn't serve at this time as as a witness in, in an official court of law. That is not the biblical position regarding women. We go back to chapter one of Genesis and God says, let us make man, and that is referring to mankind, even though it uses the masculine pronoun there. Let us make them in our image. And it says in the image of God, he made them male and female. Both man and woman are made in the image of God. God created men, God created women to reflect his glory. And with an equal standing in Christ, women are to be part of the church gathering. They are to hear the word of God and they are to be educated. We see this just as an example in Jesus' own ministry. When he, has, he goes to visit the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus is their brother, he goes to visit them and Mary is seated at his feet listening to his teaching. That would have been a scandalous thing to some of the Jewish rabbis. They would not have allowed a woman probably in the room, but definitely that close. And Jesus ends up rebuking Martha because she's so distracted and preoccupied with the stuff in the kitchen and she's neglecting to receive the word of God. Jesus expects women to to hear his word and to learn from it and to be blessed by it. This is the Christian position. Women matter. They are to learn. The the Greek verb here is manthano, which is the word to learn. The noun form is mathetes. I don't know if you've heard that word. It means a learner, a student. But the usual translation of the Bible is disciple. So in, in a general sense, someone who's learning, someone who is a student is a disciple. And so we could maybe paraphrase here by saying Paul expects women to be discipled. They're not to be excluded from that function of the church. Paul's instruction in verse 11 is not telling him to teach women. He assumes that's already happening, and it is. It's possible that women had come out of the oppressive Jewish or Roman society, and now they're rejoicing in their ability to take part in the people of God in in, in a full way. He assumes that's happening, but what he does in his command is speak to the women, and he talks about the manner in which they are to learn in the general assembly of the church. And the command comes in the form of a general principle. I'm going to do a little grammar for a second so you can tune me out if you don't care. But if you're into grammar, maybe this matters to you. 
he does something here that's very common in the Bible, but it's not common in the English language. It's not easy to translate. This is what's known as a third person imperative. An imperative is a command. You tell someone to do something, that's an imperative. And we typically use the imperative in the second person, which means you're talking to someone directly. You clean your room, take out the trash. You're giving someone a command and you're talking directly to the person to whom you give the command. But in first century Greek, the imperative form can also be used in the third person, meaning you're giving a command to someone who you're not speaking to directly. And in, when that happens, it, it's functioning basically like a general principle. It's a, it's a general command that is to be obeyed. And so some versions of the Bible prefer to translate this by using the word let. That's what I have in the, in the ESV. Very common in the Bible. You see, usually in the New Testament when you see let this happen, it's a third person command. It can be a little misleading though. For example, uh, James 1, 5 and 6 says, ESV says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. Well, let who? Who's him? It's a third person, someone who's not there. It's a, it's a hypothetical person to teach a principle. And then he says, James says, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. When, when, when we see the word let there, at least in the ESV, it's not talking about allowing the man to pray. It is a command telling that man, in this case the whole church, what they are to do. That man must ask God and he must ask in faith without doubting. So in this case, I think the more helpful translations are gonna use the word must or should. That's what the New American has. Other translations do the same. If you translate it over to mix it with the ESV, it would say a woman must learn quietly and with all submissiveness. That, that's the principle that Paul intends to be obeyed. The question is, what does he mean by that? What is Paul hoping to produce or to prevent by this command? And to answer that, we have to do a couple things. We have to answer a couple more questions. First of all, we need to understand the nature of Paul's command. And we'll do that in a moment just by looking at what he's actually saying. And second of all, we need to understand the scope of his command. So what's the nature of the command? What is it that he wants? And then second, what's, what's the scope? What's the sphere of this command? When or how is it supposed to be applied? How, how absolute is this? So we're going to talk about those questions one at a time. The first question is, what's the nature of his command? Let's just look at what Paul says and start there. It's the best place to start with understanding what he's saying got a couple words that he uses, and then he gives a specific example. The first word he uses is a noun, actually, that means quietness or silence. So the ESV says, let a woman learn quietly. That's an adverb, but, but in the Greek, it's a noun. Let her learn in quietness is literally what it says. Most of the time, when you look up a word, we have English, you can look up other times it's used, but in the Greek, you do the same thing. You look up other times that that word is used in the Bible, and that helps you get a better understanding of what the word means. Does it mean maybe something that I'm not envisioning? And in this case, it doesn't. To be quiet or to be silent is to literally lower your volume. It's a word used by Luke in Acts 22. It says there was a crowd in Jerusalem. They want to arrest Paul because they said he took Gentiles into the, into the temple. And he stands up and he begins to make a defense and they're rowdy, they don't want to hear him. But then he begins to speak in Aramaic and it says the crowd quieted 
down even more. He's talking in our language. Paul uses a related word back in verse two of 1 Timothy 2, and he says that we should all, we're praying for kings and rulers so that we would lead a tranquil and quiet life. The opposite of them would be disorderly, expressive. We know that words like quiet and silent can be used in an absolute way or they can be used in a relative way. So let's say my family and I, we go to a museum or we go to a library and there's some tour we're gonna be on. And the person leading this guided tour looks at my family and says, hey, please, please be quiet as we go through the tour. The tour, the, the, the tour guide might be saying that we need to be completely silent, make no noise, or he might be saying that we need to dramatically lower our volume. The first would be absolute silence. The second would be relative silence. In either case, whether, whether you know, if you tell your kids, hey, be quiet. You know, most kids, they're not saying, okay, I'm never going to talk again until you tell me, right? They, they understand you're saying something. But either case, whether you're speaking absolutely or relatively, the message being communicated is that you or the person being told to be quiet is not to be an interruption to what is going on. They're not to be a distraction. They're not to be prominent. That's what it means to be quiet. You, you lower your volume in deference to something else happening. If someone's talking too loudly at the movie theater, you take, you know, everyone will shh. You're trying to quiet them down. That's the first word. He says they are to be quiet. The second word isn't explicitly talking about volume, but, but it's a related idea. He says a woman should learn quietly, and secondly, she is to learn with all submissiveness. Again, not words that our culture likes to hear. It sounds strong, and, and it should sound strong because Paul intends to say it strongly. Paul adds the word all, or some translations say complete or full. All submissiveness. Paul wants to be explicit about a woman's heart in the general assembly of the church. She has to demonstrate a heart of humility, a heart of submission. Paul uses the same word in chapter three. He's talking about elders and the requirement for a man who wants to be an elder. And he says he is to manage his own household well, keeping his children submissive. The word carries the idea of being obedient to direction. What's the opposite of a submissive child? What does that look like? That's disobedience, that is rebellion, that is complaining, that is disorderliness. It doesn't honor God, it doesn't honor Christ when a child acts like that, specifically toward his parents. And it doesn't honor Christ when a woman acts like that in the church. This is what Paul is saying. But again, we need to keep, you kept, it's okay to keep asking the question, what exactly is Paul getting at? What does it mean that they have to be quiet and submissive? You can try to invent all kinds of answers, but we don't have to do that because Paul tells us exactly what he's talking about in the very next verse. That's how you should read your Bible. Paul goes from the description of a woman in the church now to a specific example of what he means. And, and, and this, this is verse 12. It gives us a little insight into what exactly is happening in the church of Ephesus that he needs to correct so to figure out what Paul has in mind when he says a woman should be quiet and submissive, we just read the next verse, verse 12. Look at it, 1 Timothy 2, 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And he repeats the same word he used back in verse 11, which helps you know this is the theme of what Paul is saying, quietness or silence. 
This is the change Paul wants to see in the Ephesian church. The error he wants to either prevent or correct is women teaching and exercising authority over men. The word Paul uses for teaching is the typical New Testament word for teaching. Didasco is the verb. In English, it's tied to the word didactic. It simply means to give instruction. This word, along with all, a bunch of other related words like teacher, teachings, used, it's used over 120 times in the Gospels and Acts in reference to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Jesus, many times, is referred to as teacher, good teacher, This is also the word Jesus used in the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go, make disciples, how? Baptizing and teaching. Well, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach. Secondly, he says, she is not to exercise authority over men. This word is not as simple to understand because it's the only time in the New Testament that he uses this verb of exercising authority. And so commentators or biblical scholars have to go and look at, okay, is there a nuance to the word that we don't understand? Let's look at other Greek writings at the time to see how is Paul using this word. Uh, by and large, most, all, the translations are, all the major translations are going to agree. The word basically means to demonstrate or to exercise authority. There are some who see it as a much stronger word, saying, no, this word means to abuse the authority, to, to, to domineer, to, to dominate. And if that's the case, then the word speaks to an abuse of authority, not just the use of authority. Most of the biblical scholars, uh, and these are the ones who make the translations, they simply see it as authority. That's the generic side. If Paul uses a word that is meant to convey the abuse of authority, it's possible he's simply saying that, well, when a woman assumes authority over man, that in itself is an abuse. It's a rejection of the order and the structure that God desires. So that's as much as we can get from the words themselves in terms of the nature of the command. But again, the second question now is, what's the scope? What's the sphere? And that's the big question. If Paul emphasizes, and he's emphasizing in different ways and repeats it, that a woman must be silent, does he mean the biggest fear would be all of life? A woman should never talk. We should never hear a woman's voice. And obviously, I think we all agree, no, that's not what he's saying. Whenever you read the Bible, even when there is a command, you have to look at the immediate context and you have to compare also other passages in Scripture to go, is, is there a context here? Is there a sphere for this? The rest of the scriptures are going to help us because we're interpreting scripture with scripture. The immediate context and the purpose of the letter tells us that Paul's primary aim is the formal structure of the church. You might remember, I keep pointing you to the key passage in Timothy. It's chapter 3, verses 14 and 15. I want to come to you soon. If I delay, I'm writing this so you would know how one ought to behave in the household of God. That's, that, that helps tell you at least the theme of the letter. So, so back in chapter one, when Paul tells Timothy, you need to stop those false teachers, put them, uh, uh, silence them. He's not focusing on all false teachers. He's not saying, Timothy, walk into the pagan temples and, and stop everything. Turn over the tables there. That's not what he's saying. His concern is the false teachers who have infiltrated the church and who are doing their thing, teaching false doctrines, falsely representing Christ. 
In chapter two, when Paul calls for evangelistic prayer, obviously that's something we should be doing at a personal level, but Paul is saying, I need that. That should be part of the, the function of the church, part of the formal gathering. Paul's instruction to men about praying and gathering at peace, that, that's, that's when they come together. His instructions for women and their clothing, he's not talking about what they wear at home or when they're about to go to bed. He's talking about what you wear when you come to the gathering of the church. And in the verses that follow, you see the same thing. Paul talks about elders. He talks about deacons, which those are, those are recognized offices in the church. We'll talk about them in a couple of weeks. But this is, again, just setting the context of what he's saying. In chapter 4, Paul says, Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to exhortation, to teaching. He doesn't mean, Timothy, grab a Bible, go stand on the street corner, and just start reading the Bible out loud. That's not what he means. He says, this is what the church should be doing when it gathers. So this is what he's talking about. He's talking about the gather, the formal corporate gathering of the church. So this command to be silent or to be quiet, is dealing in the same sphere. It's the formal gathering of the church. But it just, more questions. Okay, how, how specific is this? When does this start? So the moment, you know, someone comes up and starts doing announcements, silence, and then once we dismiss, then you can talk again? Is it, is it when you park your car and then you get in your car, you can't talk in between those things? You're not allowed to make any noise, women? Is that what he's saying? He's not saying that. He can't be saying that because now we need to bring in other passages. For example, Colossians 3 speaks of the church singing hymns and praises. And it says you are to admonish one another with, with truth and wisdom. We can assume that was including the women because he says the one another. Everybody, he just makes no qualifications. That's part of the church gathering. What about teaching? Well, women shouldn't teach at all. Well, you can't say that either because teaching is predominantly used for men. There are only a couple instances where it's specific, but there is one specific in a positive light, and that is Titus 2, where Paul says the older women are to teach the younger women to, to love their husbands, to care for the home. So this is not an absolute prohibition. Women can't teach, and when you gather for service, you know, they can't make any noise whatsoever. We also have 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11 talks about men and women praying, and he makes a distinction between the way the men pray and the way the women pray. We don't know exactly what that looked like, first century church services, but he does say men and women, both sexes, were, were part of what was going on. So that tells us that there is a, a normal part of the church gathering that everyone takes part in. The women are not to be excluded. So again, what is he talking about? Paul's exclusion here has to do with the formal instruction of the word of God. That is the official teaching role in the church. That's the silence that Paul is talking about. This is not absolute silence in the gathering of the church. It is, it, it is Paul saying that women are not to take part in, the, in giving official instruction as part of the general assembly of the church. We, we know we just saw in Colossians, women are to sing Women ought to take part in every aspect of the church service, just like everybody else does. Women go to our, our home groups. They contribute there. There are questions and discussions. There's, not, there's no sin in having a woman on stage. There's no sin in having a woman uh, on a microphone helping us sing. It is a wonderful thing to have women serving in ministry, teaching kids, teaching other women. It is essential that churches have that. I myself have benefited 
countless times for the ministry of women. Uh, you guys are a lot quieter than the, than the Spanish service. So if you come to Spanish service, it's a lot more interactive. And usually it's because I can't say a word in Spanish. So I get like nine versions of a word. And I'm going to say that again. And they, they're, they're, you know, they're teaching me when they do that. I didn't, I didn't conjugate my verb exactly right. So they're going to help me. There's no problem with that. Okay, but there's a distinction where the congregation is speaking or interacting between the type of speaking I'm doing as a recognized formal teacher in the gathered church. Some ladies have come to me with, with lists. You said this, you said this, you said this, and this is the right way to say it. And I say, every time I say, thank you very much, keep telling me, because I want to get better in Spanish. I'm grateful for that. There are examples of that in the New Testament. Uh, uh, Priscilla and Aquila. So Aquila is the husband, Priscilla is the wife. They, they talk to Apollos. They teach him. Again, it's, it, there's no indication that that was part of the formal service. It was a, a separate teaching. The principle here, the principle from God's word is that a woman is not to be given the platform as a recognized teacher for the gathered congregation. It doesn't mean she can't speak to the congregation, but you start to get into dividing what this looks like, but this is the principle. He's not talking, just to be clear, he's not talking about the political sphere. Is it right or wrong to have a woman president? He's not talking about the corporate sphere. Is it right or wrong to have a woman CEO? That is not mentioned here. What God is prohibiting here is a woman from taking on the teaching role that conveys authority over the congregation. To teach the word of God is to bear authority. I don't have inherent authority. I'm nobody. But I'm teaching with authority because I'm coming with the word of God. Paul, in fact, just to be clear, doesn't even say a woman can't have any authority. He says she can't have authority over a man. And, and because he's talking about teaching in the formal gathering, I think what he's primarily focused on is spiritual authority. That is the authority of formal biblical instruction. A woman is not to be a teacher of the gathered congregation. Someone asked me after the last service, so are you saying that a woman can't teach when a man is present? And I said, no, I don't think that's the case either. We have a women's class of mine. There's a woman teaching, teaching the women. And if an elder steps in to kind of just make sure things are looking good, I don't, we don't expect her to just stop talking because there's a man in the room. That is not the formal gathering of the whole church. That's a, that's a woman's class or a kid's class. That's not the issue. This is re- referring to the gathered congregation. Everybody is here, and we're going to elevate the word of God and receive it. And just so, to help you understand this a little more, I want you to turn uh, back a few, pay, uh, a few books to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is not an isolated instruction. I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. They're all kind of related, but I want you to see chapter 14. You're gonna see the same idea here in 1 Corinthians, and, and it gets you to understand that the same thing was happening. The, the, the Corinthian church was a mess. It was disorderly. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 13. So go back before Galatians, Ephesians, all those little books. You'll see, if you see Romans, you gotta go forward a little bit. You'll see 1 and 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 33. The context here is the church service and people were speaking in other languages and people were giving prophetic revelations in the church. This was part of the gathering. It's still a little mysterious to us because we don't have clear delineations of what a church service looked like. But Paul is talking about orderliness because their service had turned into a mess. People, it seems, were trying to talk over one another. They're trying to make sure their prophecy or their message gets heard. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 33. 
He says, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. Maybe some of you have been to church services where it's, 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 it's confusion. It's every man for himself. Everybody's talking at the same time. And what, what is going on here? He said, that doesn't edify anybody. You can read chapter 11, 12, and 13, and 14 to talk more about that. But let's keep reading. At the end of verse 33, he says this. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there's anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. And then he asks the question in verse 36, or was it from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? He's saying, I'm giving you, on the authority of Christ as an apostle, Paul is saying, I'm giving you the word of God and you're doing things contrary to God's word. Do you know something we don't know? Did the word of God originate with you? You can change it however you want? Are you the only ones who have this new revelation that you can change the way you do church? So he uses the same ideas, submission, humility, silence. But again, it's important to understand the context. It's not, it's not a sin to whisper to the person next to you. It's not a sin to have your voice be heard when the church is gathering. But the context here is the, the gathering of the church. And he's talking about people speaking in languages. He's talking about people giving prophecies. Those were, at that time, manifestations of the Spirit. They were being done by the Spirit to authenticate the apostles as messengers, to authenticate the early church. The Bible wasn't completed yet, so you're getting new revelation that's taking place. But as those revelations came to the church, evidently the church was being affected by the the pagan practices around them. And, and, And so Paul says, no, no, no. He says the same thing he said to Timothy. You need to have order. You need to have structure. The women are to be silent, not absolutely silent, but silent in regard to the formal authoritative teaching of God's word for the gathered assembly. The women are to be submissive to their husbands, not drawing attention to themselves. A woman is not to speak authoritatively from the word of God as the congregation gathers, and she's not to distract from disruptive questions that it it appears here they weren't weren't invited. I I want to point your attention one more time to the end of verse 33. Um, Depending on your translation, it might have it with 33. The ESV has it as a second paragraph, and I think it's better to move that way. But the end of verse 33 says, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent. This is not an isolated principle. This is something Paul expected from all the churches. The women were to be silent in regard to the public formal teaching of the word of God. You can, you can go back to 1 Timothy now, but we're going to wrap up soon. I, I wanted you to see the passage in 1 Corinthians because I, I, I want to I temper what's going on. We're, we're trying to draw the circle around what Paul is saying, and there are people who draw the circle really big. Oh no, this is everything. Women, you know, you have very oppressive systems of religion in the name of Christ or in the name of something else. You have that group, then you have the group that wants to shrink this. No, 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 it's, 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 it doesn't mean what, what it seems like it's saying. And so they shrink the circle. And we need to be ready to accept that, no, God has given us structure and order. He has set a structure in the family. And he has set a structure in the church, in the family. 
we'll talk about this more next week, in the family, the man leads, he loves. He's not to domineer, he's not to, to be harsh with his wife, he's to love and support. There's actually never a command in the Bible that says, men, lead your wives. That's an assumption, it's, it's wives submit to your husbands. He is to love, he's to sacrifice for his wife and to demonstrate the leadership of Christ. In the home, the man is the leader. Then you come into the church, and this is what Paul wants to see presented. The men are leading. Christ has determined roles, and we're gonna talk about that more next time as we continue in this study. But as you read it, I think in our culture, you probably have churches or, or, or groups in mind that, that you go, yeah, they don't, they don't honor that. He's, he's trying to say it as forcefully as he can. A woman is to be silent with regard to the teaching. Why are there churches and groups that place women in positions where they address and teach the congregation? How do churches get around what Paul is saying? There's a number of ways to answer that, but basically it's all intended at shrinking the sphere of this command, and they want to say, well, it only applied to Ephesus at that time, and then I assume they would say the same about Corinth. That puts a church, frankly, in a very dangerous and uh, unhealthy position. Because once you start to tighten circles, you, how can you, what keeps you from doing the same with other instructions in Scripture? Oh, that's expired already. There are some who claim, well, no, see, Paul says, I desire. So he's just expressing his opinion. This is not really authoritative. It's not binding on churches. Others claim Paul was only addressing some women in the church. They knew who Paul was talking about, and it only applied to them. Others will say Paul was talking about women because they were uneducated at the time. They were, they were untrained, or they were new Christians, and so that was true for that time, but now women are discipled and educated, and it doesn't matter. Others will take passages that deal with our quality before the Lord, like Galatians 3. We'll talk about this next week. And they'll say, look, we're equal before the Lord. Therefore, there is to be no distinction in function. Theologically, the term for that is egalitarianism. Egalitarianism is the belief that because we're equal in Christ, we have erased all distinctions and all roles in the church between men and women. The other side of egalitarianism, the, 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 the opposite counterargument to that is complementarianism, which is to say men and women complement each other, but there is a difference. We're equal before the Lord, but we have a different function. One of the critical elements to the complementarian position is that none of the arguments that people use to undo what Paul is saying is specifically mentioned by Paul. Paul doesn't mention education. Paul doesn't mention how long they've been Christians. Paul doesn't mention false teaching versus true teaching. The reason Paul gives for his instruction is the order of creation. That, that's what he roots this command in, the creation of Adam and Eve, and Lord willing, we'll talk about that next time, and I'll take a more focused time to deal with the responses to Paul and the arguments and the counter-arguments for today, I just wanted to lay that foundation. You know, I think in the first century, most people would have read it and say, okay, we get it. And now we're 2,000 years later and people have invented ways to say, well, that's not what it means. It really means this. We don't have to obey that part. So how do we think through that? I want to equip you to answer some of those things, explain to you why these still apply to the church today. And more importantly, I think at the end of the chapter, we'll talk about the beautiful calling God has for women as a vital part of our families and our churches. Let's pray.
Father, you are the God of creation. Even in our reading today, we're reminded you, you created everything in six days and then you rested for a day. You set an order, a structure, and we follow that pattern still today with a typical week of seven days. And you also set structure for families and for churches. We want to admit our own sinful hearts. Those of us who are called to lead are tempted to be lazy to set aside our responsibilities and assume someone else will take care of it. We're tempted to domineer, to be authoritarian in the way that we lead, to expect things to be done our way even if we don't say it. And we fail to love the way Christ loves. We fail to give of ourselves the way Christ laid his life down for the church. And we're called to submit. We're tempted to feel that, no, 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 we don't have to submit in this case because we disagree. And all this is, has been around since the beginning of sin, since the beginning of the story of, of your redemption. You are gracious and kind, and for sin there is judgment, but there is also salvation in Christ. So we pray you, one, for those of us who know Christ, to remind us of our commitment to him and our submission to his design. And secondly, Father, for those who don't know you, for those where a teaching like this is a, is a sticking point. Remind them that there is much more at stake than just the role and the contribution of women in church. At stake eternally is our souls. What matters is if we will humble ourselves and repent of our way of thinking and trust in Christ and receive his word. Plant it deep in our hearts. Give us strong roots in the truth. And we pray you would use us to proclaim your truth and bring others to know Christ as well. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.